Good morning. I can't. You know what I'm excited about? When Clint takes his nutrition class, he can start doing all of our meal planning. I think that's going to be amazing. Thank you guys for praying and for uh, just bringing that up. I really appreciate it. Hey, you might not realize it. Can you take the volume down just a hair for me? That's great. Uh, You might not realize it, but about once a month I've been doing a little bit of a departure from the message series that we've been in and doing something that focuses a little bit more on our vision and our values as a community. And so this is like the the third time that I'm going to do that. So the end of February, I talked about how we as a community would answer kind of five key questions, like who are we and what are we doing and how are we doing it and when is that successful and what that's going to look like. At the end of February, I talked about that. Uh, At the end of March, I talked about a passage from John 15 where Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches and that when we remain connected in him, we will bear much fruit. We'll have really fruitful lives. And that fact, that's the only way that we'll have fruitful lives. And so today, I want to take a look at Psalm 1. It's a key passage for me when I think about who we are as a community and what life with God is meant to look like. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Psalms, so let me just introduce this for uh, just a little bit. It's an amazing collection of poetry. Anybody else like poetry? Okay, there's like two of us. That's awesome. The rest of you guys will like it by the end of today. I'm I'm not going to guarantee that. Um, Just so... The the Psalms are a collection of songs, they're a collection of poems that were put together for Israel while they were in exile. It's actually made up of five books. There's like five books of the Psalms in our one book, and it's meant to echo the five books of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. It's meant to echo that, to point back to that. Um, uh, picture this, Israel's in exile, they're far away from their tabernacle, their temple where they regularly go to meet with God. They took this collection of psalms, they put them together very purposefully to echo that as a way to meet with God. And so the psalms are like a poetic teaching, it's a poetic meditation on the lifelong practice of prayer as people strive to become obedient to what God had commanded Israel towards in the Torah. Picture the Psalms like a virtual temple. Like you don't have a place you can go meet with God. The Psalms are the place where you meet with God. The Psalms are where you interact with him and and with others. It's poetry that's designed for a lifetime of slow reading and kind of slow reflection. And then Psalm 1 and 2 are like an intro to the whole thing. Right? Psalm 1 is this poetic reflection on how a person's life is incredibly blessed. And I'll talk about what that word means in a minute. Um, when we are oriented towards like, putting what God says into practice. And then Psalm 2 is this poetic reflecting on God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 that one day a messianic king would establish God's kingdom over the entire world and defeat evil finally once and for all. So, Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all who take refuge in that messianic king will be blessed, which is exactly the words used to open Psalm 1. And then that sets up the whole book of Psalms, or actually the five books of Psalms. So the Psalms are actually retelling the entire biblical story, and they're inviting you into 
like, I don't know, let's call it like a literary temple, a literary place where you meet with God, uh, all in poetry. So Psalm 1, it's a poem, it's a work of art that invites you to experience God. It's a work of art that invites you to experience God. Really good works of art, that's what, like, that's what they all do. Really good works of art. This, uh, this past week, uh, uh, no, it was about three weeks ago now, uh, for my birthday, I went to New York, and I talked about this uh, last week, to take a kintsugi workshop, uh, repairing Japanese pottery using a tradition from 16th, 17th century Japan. Well, one of the days I was there, I've always wanted to go to the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, I made my living as an artist for a bunch of years before being a pastor, so uh, I'm an artist, sorry. Uh, and uh, I'd always wanted to go to the Museum of Modern Art. I'd never been there, and there's really about six paintings that I really wanted to see, and so I spent six hours, and I saw six paintings. They were all in different places, so I had to wander by and see other things like on the way, but that's what I wanted to do, and I just sat there in front of six paintings for about six hours. Now, you're thinking, some of you are thinking, what the heck would you do in front of a painting for an hour? You actually start noticing stuff. Like when you first look at it, it just looks like paint on a canvas. You're like, oh, that's cool. That's Starry Night. That's Van Gogh. Okay, next. Oh, selfie. By the way, that's really annoying. <laughs> We're in the gallery taking selfies in front of amazing works of art, right? And so like I'm, I'm, I'm standing there in front of that and I'm just noticing and noticing and the crowd keeps shifting and the selfies keep being taken and eventually you're able to tune that all out. And not only are you looking at what's on the canvas, but you're noticing what's in you. Works of art, really good works of art do that. That's an amazing painting, by the way, looking at how heaven and earth interact and it's all alive. And right in the center of that painting, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, right in the center of that painting is a church that's kind of lit up. That right in the middle of all the interaction that's going on between heaven and earth, like God's right there and his people are right there. There's a picture of him right there. Who knows what Van Gogh had in mind when he was doing that. He worked as a missionary for years, but there's something really powerful about that. Psalm 1 is like that. It's a work of art that if you actually spend time with it, you don't just give it a cursory read. You'll notice more things about what's going on in the art. You'll notice more things about what's going on in you than you really ever imagined possible. Okay, so Psalm 1 paints this picture. It goes actually back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the garden, to the river of life, to the tree of life at the center of the garden. And the, the, the first humans in the original garden in Psalm 1 and 2 were placed in creation. All of creation was like the temple where they dwell with God. And God was giving them his wisdom a little bit at a time as they got used to what they were doing. And they were engaged in the garden, they were caring for it, but along the way, Psalm 3, they decided to pursue wisdom on their own terms and became exiled from the garden. Psalm 1 paints this picture of an upright human being who delights in God's wisdom, delights in the Torah, and this person is like a tree of life in the garden, which is a temple, and they eternally blossom because they are planted in the river of God's life. So that's what we're looking at in Psalm 1. Uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Psalm 1? There's right there in the uh, back of the chair there in front of you, there's Bibles. It's easy to find the Psalms. You just kind of go to the middle. 
Just go to the middle of the book and you'll be somewhere near the Psalms. Make your way to Psalm 1 or you can just use page numbers. That's an easy way to do it too. And, um, and uh, let me read that right after I pray. Heavenly Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the way that you teach us and guide us and lead us into a life that's meant to be incredibly joy-filled, life-giving, fruitful, even abundant in the midst of our world, which often feels really broken. Thank you that that's what you intend. Would you help us to listen to you? Would you help us to learn from you? Even from this ancient Hebrew poetry, this like ancient work of art, would you allow us to hear your voice? In Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like the shaft that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. All right, let me just unpack the contrasts that are here in Psalm 1. There's two biblical realities. Biblically, uh, what we see in the scriptures is that life offers two roads. Now, honestly, that's offensive to many of us, our modern minds, that there's not, it's, it's not a both-and approach to life. It's an either-or approach. It's like a binary choice. And currently, we just kind of rub, get rubbed the wrong way by binary choices. We really don't like it. But the truth is that they're like all over Scripture and all over life. There are two conflicting kingdoms that we see in Scripture, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's two entry points. There's the wide gate that leads to destruction and the narrow gate that leads to life. Jesus said the exact same thing, Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And what's interesting in the scriptures is we don't really find a reconciliation of these opposites, right? There's no kind of equal and competing opposites that bring balance. There is no yin and yang. It's like there's these two realities. And if you're going to be really honest, that's super hard for many of us to swallow. We're taught from a young age to not like go too far one way or the other, Right? Especially don't go too far with this Jesus thing. When I became a follower of Christ back in the late 70s, I'll never forget a couple of friends, my dad and a couple of friends just said, you know, don't go too far. It's okay that you're doing this, but don't go too far with it. Like with all of life, we tend to do that. But, but if you think about it in reality, like those opposites are there in our lives. You cannot be an honest person who lies. 
you cannot be faithful in your marriage and be an adulterer. There's no such thing as a lazy hard worker, right? The truth is that there, there is an on and an off switch to most of our devices. Oh Lord, that we would find the off switch once in a while. The first three verses show us that a blessed person doesn't do certain things and does do certain things, verses one and two. So let's look at that. It says that there are two sources of counsel, verses one and two. So let me start with this word. There's a, there's a couple words that are translated blessed in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. This word leans towards being like happy, like fulfilled. Uh, it means to be fortunate. It means to uh, actually have blessing, experience blessing in your life. Think of it this way. Psalm 1 is giving you the secret to a happy life. Like what's the secret to actually a really good life? Like picture this as an intro to the Psalms. It's a meditation starting with the very beginning of the Bible. Psalm 1 is saying, what's it look like to actually have a good life? What's a good life all about? If you want to experience solid, consistent joy in your life, Psalm 1 is saying, this is how you're going to get it. There's a way that you follow it if you're going to follow the book of Psalms, right? Otherwise, if you don't do this, it's saying that the whole rest of the thing, the next 149 Psalms, your worship is going to be flat. It's not going to measure up. Stated another way, if, if you want to be real in your following of Jesus, if you want to be real in your expression of Christianity, there are certain things that you do, and then there's a certain person that you need to be, because if not, when you try to pray, when you try to lean in, it's just going to feel like you're a fake, like you're a hypocrite. Let me, let me state it a different way. If you don't want to be a hypocrite, if you don't want to be a fake, someone is telling you how not to do that. It's actually pretty simple. And so first of all, from a negative point of view, there's counsel to avoid. So look at what he says. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. So remember, this is Hebrew poetry. The writer's giving us a well-rounded picture of what not to do, right? If you want to experience a, a blessed, happy life, don't do these things. Don't walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. There's a purposeful progression here. It goes from walking to standing to sitting. So to walk in step with the wicked, it's to walk in step of those, with those, in the counsel of those who are unconnected to God. This is the basic thing that the psalmist is saying. Like, don't put into practice, don't walk in step with those that are unconnected to God. To stand in the way that sinners take is not only to listen to their counsel, but then begin to live the same way, to act it out, to be just like those who are disconnected or unsurrendered to God. And then to sit in the company of mockers is to belong to that community who do that, to, who judge from the perspective of their own pride and cynicism, where they actually put themselves in the place of God. So the psalmist is saying, you want to live a happy life, don't find your identity, don't align your life with those who are unsubmitted to God, who are in direct rebellion against God and what he thinks. So he's linking our happiness, our blessedness, the psalmist is, to the counsel we listen to, by the way that we design to, uh, 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 the, the way that we decide to align our lives, and the, the advice that we listen to, and the people we hang out with, the counsel of the wicked. So it's listening, it's heeding counsel. 
If you follow the wrong counsel, if you follow the wrong people, the psalmist is saying, you're just not going to be happy. So what's the counsel of the wicked? Well, it might involve, I mean, if you're really honest, have you ever talked to people and you read something in here and all of a sudden you're talking to somebody and says, yeah, 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 I know what that says. But if you really want to be happy, here's what you need to do. And it's totally like the different thing that's this. Have you ever had those kinds of conversations? Am I the only one? No, no, you guys have had those conversations as well, right? And then like, what do you do? What do you do when you're having that conversation? Right? What's the thing that you do? Where, where do you go kind of in that moment? It might be advice from a family member or a friend. It might be about your marriage or your work situation that takes no account of what God well, here's what I would do if my husband ever said that to me. Here's the way I relate to my life, my life, wife. Here's the name of my attorney. Here's how you deal with that. And it's totally different. Totally different from what we read in the scriptures. The counsel of the wicked biblically is counsel devoid of the mind of God. It takes no account of God's word. It's a whole outlook of life that's passed on to us, an entire paradigm that we tend to take for granted as being a happy way of life. Like, of course you're going to want to live with this level of affluence. Of course you're going to want to have that kind of house. Well, of course you need that kind of car. Well, of course you need this many motorcycles in your garage because the weather changes and you need different bikes. I'm just talking to myself here for a moment for different things, right? Of course you want to shop in those kinds of stores. We have a, such a high need for community, for relationship that God's built in us that we end up being shaped by the counsel that we listen to, by the people we spend time with. And all of us, whatever our age, the psalmist is warning, we're tempted to pick up attitudes and values that are part of the organization where we work or where we play, the partnerships we're in, the friends that we have, because we want to belong. And one of the ways this influences us highly today is in the area of cynicism. We live in an incredibly cynical culture, and of course, we wear it like a, like a badge, like a badge of pride, our cynicism. And in doing so, we embrace a way of life that's not part of what God's given to us. Cynicism has to do with seeing through kind of the positive appearances of something and unmasking kind of the basic motivations of greed and power and lust and selfishness. Cynicism says that every respectable agenda has a dark private agenda. And we try to make it sound positive by saying the cynic is the enlightened people who are not like suckers, they're not like sheep, they're not like being you know, taken advantage of. And it's become such a part of our culture, honestly, that we hardly even notice it. We tend to dismiss any movie that has like a positive message pretty quickly. And the only really good ones are like the feel-bad ones. Because they're like getting at the truth of stuff. If you really want like, to dive into this more, there's a, a book that I, uh, I've reread over the past five or six years uh, by a guy named, an author named Dick Keyes called Seeing Through Cynicism. It's a fascinatingly fun book, if you want to like, take a dive into that a little bit more. But the bottom line is that to embrace the point of the cynic, you find that joy slowly is drained from your life completely. Because what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the place of God, 
when we put ourselves in the place of the cynic. There's no joy for the person who can think they can see through everything and only finds negative emotions, especially when they look in the mirror, if you're going to be honest with stuff. One of my friends describes this as the dark rabbit hole of life that he always lives next to. Like once you begin to dive into the rabbit hole, and I love going into the rabbit hole, right? Once you begin to dive into that, you begin to think that you understand the dark motives of everything all around you, and it gets darker and darker. And here's the reason why. Because according to the scriptures, only God knows the motivations of another person's heart. And so the moment that you begin to think, that we begin to think that we know the motivations of another person's heart, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. And so when the psalmist says, blessed is the person who does not sit in the company of mockers, he's saying, blessed is the person who does not put themselves in the place of God and think that they understand everything that's going on inside of another person. Blessed is the person who does not give in to cynicism. Because then you reduce all of life and creation to what you misunderstand. That's right there in Psalm 1, verse 1. So he's, war he's writing to uh, warn us to avoid this deepening, uh, this whole way of life that actually rejects God, pushes him to the margins, and puts ourselves in his place. And notice when you read through these that he's really primarily focusing on our thought life, our values, our attitudes, what's going on in our mind, and then how you begin to practice what you believe. There are things to avoid, he warms us. And then there are things to heed, so positively. Blessed are those who, verse two, but delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. The apostle Paul says the same kind of thing in Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how do we get our minds renewed? How do we do this? How do we begin to align our values rightly? Those who delight in the law of the Lord. Not just obey what God has put down. So sometimes we often think of God like this. He's imposing rules on us as some heavenly like slave master, taskmaster. And how would you ever delight in those kinds of laws? How would you delight in that kind of thing? He's encouraging us to, to find pleasure in, to find value, to treasure, to cherish the instruction from the Lord that we receive in his word. So think about it this way. Imagine that you're lost in the woods and then somebody just, you know, maybe it's like a video game, you just reach down and find it under a leaf and you finally find a compass. You find a way out. Have you ever found yourself delighting in the way that God's given us a compass? a way to live life. I don't know about for you guys, but for me, one of the things that happened to me when I first began to read this, again, remember I was a senior in high school, talked about it last week. I first began to read this thing. One of the things that dawned on me is I got about two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way through the Gospel of John, the first book that I read in the Bible. One of the things that dawned on me was, like, if this is true, it changes everything I thought I knew about the world. It was like being given a compass. It was like that Van Gogh painting, all of a sudden realizing that all of this stuff is moving and active and God's right there in the middle of it all. That all of life is interacting with who he is and what he's done. 
We've been given instruction. We've been given counsel. We've been given wisdom on how to deal with anger, on how to handle hurt, on what forgiveness looks like, on on what it means to actually experience real peace, not just an absence of conflict, but like peace way down inside, on how to have hope in the face of death. We've been given like instruction on how to deal with crises like we experienced in Duluth this week. And more personally, like how to deal with my addictive behaviors, how to deal with the people, how to, how to live with the people that I, I live around that sometimes I really enjoy and sometimes they really annoy me. Like how do you do with that? How do you relate to parents and spouse and children? How do I relate to my body? How do I relate to my gender? How do I relate to politics? Like all of that is hidden in there. But instead of listening to it, many of us treat this the same way that we treat the manual that comes with your cell phone. Have you ever read one of those? They don't even include them anymore. They just give you like a link to go look at them because nobody reads them and they were killing way too many trees to make them, right? The only time you go to the manual for your cell phone is when everything is like, you can't get it, it just become a brick. You can't even open the thing up anymore. Okay, where's the manual? Apparently, you should have looked in it like a year before that, and it wouldn't have been bricked out. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's the same thing that's true here. It's like we tend to go to it only when we're like in trouble. The, listen, the, the, the Bible is not a book of rules imposed by a slave master in heaven. It's a book of guidance given by a heavenly father who dearly, deeply loves us, and he wants our lives to be really happy. So it says delight, to take pleasure, to take pleasure in it. Okay, just pause for a second. What do you take pleasure in? When I say, what do you take pleasure in? What do you really delight in? What do you really enjoy? Hopefully some things come to mind. I have a list of about 160 things that I've jotted down in the past month or so since Steve Cuss was visiting us and we did a little workshop with him here not long ago. I call it my life-giving list. I got a list of about 160 things right now that I just take deep pleasure in. There are moments. There's big things, but then there's little things I can go to. Like early in the morning, grinding my own coffee beans, pressing them through my little whatever that thing is, and then drinking that first little sip after I've rehydrated my body with water. Oh man, that first drink of water in the morning, you feel it go all the way down. Dude, that's so amazing. Like the plumbing works. Whew, it still works. Another day, the plumbing still works. 63, whew, who knew? Well, most of it. <laughs> most of the plumbing works. That was a bad joke, sorry. What would it look like to actually delight in God's wisdom in that way? What might have to change, what might have to get rearranged in us, in you, to actually find delight here rather than like, meh, So I don't know if you have a Bible reading app or if you have a physical Bible. One of the things I highly recommend, we do this, I've been doing this for like 40 some years, reading through the entire book, the Bible book, every single year. You don't have to read through it all in a year. Like set a three-year goal. Set a two-year goal. Or set like a three-month goal if you're like an overachiever. Go for it. I double dog dare you. Right? But actually begin to let some of what's in there seep into here. And what you'll discover is that if you do a little bit of work with it, you'll begin to delight in it. 
You'll, it'll begin to come to life. In just some really cool ways, the Holy Spirit does that. And then he says, meditate on it day and night. You know, in the Bible, I don't know how many of you guys practice any kind of meditation. Sometimes, especially in Christian circles, people tend to think meditation is just this weird, like, yoga, Eastern thing. I, I don't know. I think bending your body into a pretzel is kind of cool. Like, I, I don't think it has to be anything kind of weird. But unlike other forms of meditation, the way that a follower of Christ biblically meditates is not by emptying your mind. It's actually by filling your mind with God's word. Let me read a quote from Richard Foster in a book called Prayer, Finding Our Heart's True Home. He writes this. Have you ever watched a cow chew its cud? Yes? No? This unassuming animal will fill its stomach with grass and other food. Then it settles down quietly and through a process of regurgitation reworks what is received, slowly moving its mouth in the process. In this way, it's able to fully assimilate what is previously consumed. And then that's transformed into creamy rich milk. So it is with meditative prayer. The truth being meditated on passes from the mouth into the mind and down into the heart, where through quiet rumination, regurgitation, if you will, it produces in the person praying a loving, faith-filled response. It, it, to meditate means that I'm internalizing and I'm processing the message. So for the past few months, I've been working on a, uh, a painting uh, kind of trying to illustrate some of Psalm 1. That's why you're seeing so many tree paintings on the screen. I have written out Psalm 1 in what I'm going to call illegible calligraphy more than a hundred times. As I'm doing that, I'm meditating on it. I'm like allowing it to like go deep into my soul. I'm, I'm using my hands and my mind as I'm writing that over and over and over again. And as I'm writing it, I have to go back to the scripture because I keep putting words. I'm dyslexic, so sometimes I just spell them wrong, right? I tried to write creativity, and I was going to write creativity, and I was so proud of it, and I looked really good, and then I took a picture of it, I showed it to Brenda, and she goes, that's misspelled. And I said, yeah, but all the right letters are there. <laughs> somebody just got them in the wrong order. Somebody designed somebody's brain wrong and got them in the right wrong order, Right? What In meditation, the Bible stops being a dictionary of quotations, and it becomes wonderful words of life. Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does it mean? Like you sit with that passage for a second. What does it mean to let God's peace reign over all of my emotions? What might that mean? What does it mean, Jesus, that your peace comes from you coming into the world as the Son of God and then dying on the cross for me. And you just sit with that over and over. A phrase like this, I could meditate on for two or three months. What does it mean that Christ came and his peace rules in my heart that when I'm having trouble with somebody and the emotions are kind of all angst up, what does it mean to experience God's peace in the midst of that? In meditation, I'm chewing on the passage again and again until it becomes part of me. What does it mean to actually delight in the way that God said the world needs to work, the way that my life needs to work? What does it mean to find delight in that? I can tell you one, way, one thing that it means. I was out with my granddaughters. They are four and one. Uh, uh, what was it yesterday? Today's Sunday, Friday and Saturday. Uh, the one-year-old's getting molars. She's not happy. Like, 
every three seconds, she's just like, rah, 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 rah. You know, she's just like growling all the time. I try to pick her up. She starts crying, and I'm like, but it's your papa. Look at, do you want to play with this? You know, and I try to tickle her with my beard. She laughs for a little bit, and then she just turns, looks at mom, and starts crying again. What does it mean when I'm feeling offended that the one-year-old doesn't think I'm the coolest thing on the planet? Do you know what I mean? Anybody ever been a parent? What does it mean when the parents are like getting at each other because the kids are just being kids? What does it mean in that moment to experience delight in the way that God said that things work? And I got to tell you, like the last couple days when they were really angsty, the delight came in little tiny bits interspersed with the annoying parts. But as a grandparent, dude, even the annoying parts are cute, right? because I just got on a plane and came home. <laughs> That's great fun. Okay, then when there's two kinds of life, it's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. There's a rooted life that draws into itself all the nutrients and the water that causes it to flourish and to fruit. The person who's delighting in God's instruction manual for life, meditating, assimilating into the mind of God, the very core of their being, that person's gonna be a rooted person. Right? And, and, and that person is going to grow through all the different seasons of life. And then there's the rootless life, not so the wicked. They're like the shaft that the wind blows away. You know what shaft is? When they were threshing grain, they would tend to throw it up into the air in these huge baskets. And the shaft was just the shell part that would blow away because the heavy grain fell back down. And it says that our life outside of this is weightless. You might say transient or like bubbles. There's no substance to it. Not so the wicked. They're like shaft that the wind blows away. And then there's two outcomes of life. Verses five and six. The wicked will not stand in judgment, but the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. I don't think the psalmist, there's an awful outcome here. I don't think the psalmist is only talking about an end time judgment where you and I, according to the Bible, will stand before God and get assessed for everything we've done. I think he's also talking about an outcome of forming a life apart from God, a life apart from the mind of God. He's talking about the inevitable consequences of living according to the counsel of those who are not connected to God. What happens to the person who's rootless, weightless, all veneer, no substance. And then what happens to the person whose world, when crisis moments hits, when you're deeply rooted in God, and that you discover that you have like cancer, you discover your company shuts down, you discover that you have a miscarriage or your house burns down, or your spouse wants a divorce or you lose a parent. The psalmist says that apart from God, your life will collapse. In the end, you'll be excluded to be utterly, completely repelled. The, the word there is like, is, is, is like extreme. It's like repelled, exiled, estranged, finally excluded from the presence of God. But the psalmist is painting a picture. It's not like God's doing this to you. It's like it's been your choice all along, that you've never listened to his counsel. You never consciously, actively decided, I want to follow him. And so at the end, God just goes, okay, that's the life you want. That's what you got now. That's where you're at. The end result is that you're finally completely excluded from his presence, which you never wanted anyway. That's the awful outcome. And then there's the blessed outcome. On the other hand, the outcome of a rooted life that delights in the instruction of the Lord, it delights in the counsel of the godly, a life in which you're deeply assimilating God's word into our lives, that life is watched over by God. And it's not just a difference like at the end, 
in judgment. It's a difference every single day. And so what the Duluth Vineyard is all about is about helping people, helping us, you and I, have deeply rooted, incredibly fruitful, deeply formed life in God. And the foundation, the thing that we build that on, is the presence of Christ, the word of God, Christ himself, the logos, and God's word that he's given to us. Like it's built on that. And so I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God, but here's what I want to do. I want to have just a little ministry time where we begin to pray for one another. So if you guys would stand, I'm going to invite the ministry team to make their way to the front and the worship team to make their way to the front. And we're going to just take some time to pray for one another and invite one another into this kind of reality. We don't want to just talk about it. We want to actually learn to live this way in our real lives. And so Holy Spirit, we invite your presence right now. So if you're newer to this community, when I invite the Holy Spirit, what I'm doing is I'm saying, God, would you bring your tangible presence into this space? Could we interact with you right now in a tangible way? Not just talking about you like you're not here, but actually really interacting with you. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And hopefully as we, as I talked, the Holy Spirit was actually highlighting some things to you. You might not even known it was the Holy Spirit that have been foundational in your lives, perhaps like cynicism, that you might want to move away from. What would it look like to not be like just clueless about what's going on in the world, but to actually begin to get some of God's perspective? The opposite side of that is the cynic who thinks you already know everything that's going on in the world and you can see behind the scenes and you actually don't see any beauty. You actually don't see much joy if you keep going that way. What would it look like to actually Ask God to show you what he's doing in other people. And to let him use you, even in their lives, as an agent of his love and grace because of the rootedness that you have in the scriptures and in the word. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak to us, even right now, about things that you want to do, things that you want to dial up for each one of us, God? We say we love you. We want to align our lives towards you. One of the things I think God might want to do is just like the advice you regularly listen to, the Holy Spirit just might want to dial up some of the advice you regularly listen to and cause you to evaluate it just a bit. Like, where does that actually come from? This thing I'm assuming to be true. 
about how life works. Where does that actually come from? For some of us, we may be, I'm talking as if you have a relationship with God, that there's a deep connection to him. And for some of us here in the room today, like you are watching online, you might be listening to that kind of language and go, how does that even work? We would love to introduce you to like what it looks like to have a personal, interactive, experiential relationship with God. There's ministry team folks right up here in the front. You can click online that I want prayer, and somebody would love to walk you through that. And it involves a surrender to God. It involves unconditional surrender, saying, you know what? Like, I actually want your kind of life. I don't know how to get there. We would love to walk you through that. And so, Holy Spirit, would you give us a grace right now to respond to you? All right, so the team behind me is going to lead us in a little bit more worship. There's folks here in the front that would love to pray with you or online that would love to pray with you. And as they do, I just invite you to begin to respond. Where God has highlighted ways that you've been walking, standing, or sitting that totally take him out of the picture or where you feel like your life is a little bit more of a veneer and what's underneath it isn't that pretty or isn't that substantive, I think God actually wants to meet you and go dig into the surface beyond there a little bit. And so come on up and get some prayer and, or click online and get some prayer. Let some folks interactive with, interact with you in regards to that. This is actually the really good part of the service, so I will shut up. And you guys can come get some prayer and we'll sing and we'll do some worship together. Other than that, thank you for coming. God bless you.